This is the Green Street News, your weekly environmental health show and podcast, Patty and Doug Wood, and our network of experts. Welcome back. On the subject board today, how the food you eat can increase the risk of dementia later in life, the growing impact of plastic pollution on climate change, and an article from our friend Peter Elkind of ProPublica on the radiation from cell phones and what the government isn't telling you. Then our feature story this week, how we are all being targeted by food marketers with some pretty devastating results, especially for our kids. That's all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Okay, Patty, what happened this week in the world of environmental health? Was there good news? No, you know there's never good news, but this is... I'm going to ask every week. This is, uh, as always, interesting. It's as always interesting, okay? So this is from Bloomberg News, written by Leslie Kaufman, and the title is The Climate Impact of Our Insatiable Plastic Addiction. Oh, boy. Plastic is a miracle material shaped and folded into our lives in everything from cigarette filters to medical tubing to car bumpers. It's in the toys we give our children, it keeps our food fresh, and it makes our clothes stretchy. And we can't get enough of it. In the 1950s, the world produced 2 million metric tons of the stuff every year. Now the amount has risen to more than 400 million metric tons. If current production stays on track, yearly plastic production could reach 1.1 billion metric tons by 2050. But the convenience of plastic comes at a terrible environmental cost, some of which we've talked about before, but this is about climate change. Some of that is visible. In Ghana, mounds of garbage stand on beaches and clog streams, while in Bangkok, people who live near plants that melt plastic down cite acrid fumes and health problems. But there's an invisible and just as damaging toll, too. Plastic production and incineration add significantly to the emissions that cause climate change. And the planet is already 1.2 degrees Celsius warmer than it was before industrialization. The world is still struggling to limit warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade. So plastic was responsible for 1.8 billion metric tons of greenhouse gas emissions in 2019, according to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Researchers project that the emissions from plastic will exceed 2.5 billion metric tons by 2050. All right, so let me get this straight. Plastic is a problem when you make it. Of course, yes. So the emissions when you make it. Right. And then somehow we have to get rid of it, and and some of it's being burned, and that's creating more greenhouse gases adding to our our problem. Well, it's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, we've always talked about, you know, this next part of it here, which is that plastic is really made from chemicals and fossil fuels. Right. So producing all the many varieties of plastic requires a wide range of chemical additives, but while each product has its own special formula, ultimately, they all come from a base of fossil fuels. Across every stage of the life cycle, they emit planet-warming pollution. The U.S. has become a global center of plastic production, as well as one of the biggest markets for plastic goods, and that is by design. Major oil companies have explicitly said they expect it to help make up for declining revenues from fuel sales as countries shift to clean energy. 
The U.S. fracking boom contributed to the build-out of the domestic petrochemical industry, which now exports raw materials for plastic manufacturing around the world. So they're going to get us no matter what. As we cut down the use of fossil fuels for transportation and heating and go to other sources, they're going to just ramp up plastic production so that they can keep making money and right. polluting right. The, pl the planet. Right. So the general public thinks of fossil fuels as oil, gas, and coal, right? That's, that's right, isn't it? Right. Yeah. But what they don't think about is how many of the products that we use in our everyday lives are made from fossil fuels. Yeah. They think of fossil fuels as being cars and home right. heating oil right. and that kind of it's stuff. Stuff that's coming out of smokestacks right. and, and, and tailpipes. Yeah. That's burning fossil fuels. Right. But plastics are basically a fossil fuel product. The yeah. chemicals that they're made from and the coal and oil and gas that they're made from. I mean, come on. Anyway, so plastics, I don't think, are on everybody's mind when we talk about fossil fuels. You know, I keep talking about this plastic plant in Pennsylvania. I don't know how many of our listeners have actually taken a look at this. But they're building a gigantic plastic pellet plant uh, just north of Pittsburgh. Right. And, you know, they're planning on ramping up tremendous right. amounts. I mean, yeah, when you say pellets, those are really called, in the industries, those are called nurdles. Nurdles, I do. Right, I plastic need, nurdles. Yeah. Those are the little things that look like, you know, they, they almost look like those styrofoam peanuts, right? Yeah. And that's out of what that, they use. And the, out of that, they make the plastic it. bags that's and it. all the single-use plastic that we're yeah, throwing away. Yeah, and in this article, it says just, it talks about what you're saying. There are currently 201 working factories that support plastic production, but another 36 projects, some new, some expansions of current plants, are in permitting or construction and should be complete by 2029. If all become fully operational, they will potentially add at least 94 million tons of emissions. Did you hear that? 94 million tons of emissions on top of what occurs now. Plastics greenhouse gas emissions don't end once a product is made. More follows upon its disposal through incineration and off-gassing. The emissions from plastic incineration alone in the U.S. in 2015 were 5.9 million metric tons of CO2, and that's roughly equivalent to 1.3 million passenger vehicles driven for a year. Okay, so we have to stop using plastic and we have to shut these plants down. Yeah. We have to turn off the tap and not make more plastic. Well, and for, for many reasons. There's no good... This is, we, we don't really talk about it being a greenhouse you know, gas right. issue, right. but it is a huge climate change issue, as well as being toxic on so many levels. All those chemical additives that are added to different types of plastics, we now know are endocrine disruptors and carcinogens, and they're getting into our water, they're getting into our air, they're in our blood. Every American, every American has plastic in their bodies. And every piece of plastic that's ever been made is still here somewhere. Yeah, unless it's been burned. But then, of course, it's it's part mm. of the air pollution. All right. Well, that was really great news. What else you got? It was uplifting. Very much so. Okay. So this is a little bit on the edge of environmental health, but it thought it was really important. There's a new study published by Today.com, written by Kristen Kirkpatrick. A diet high in these foods could increase the risk of dementia, a new study finds. What foods? Hmm. Dementia impacts approximately 6.5 million Americans, and those numbers are predicted to go up. The CDC estimates that by 2060, 14 million Americans may be diagnosed with Alzheimer's, the most common form of dementia. 
Multiple studies have shown that diet, along with age, genetics, and environment, play a major role in our risk of diagnosis later in life. But now a new study shows that eating even small amounts of certain foods could significantly increase the risk of developing dementia. The study followed 10,000 individuals for 10 years and included men and women, with over 50% of the participants being female, white, and college educated. The average age of participants at the start of the study was 51 years old. Now, at the end of the study, participants were evaluated on changes in cognitive performance over time by utilizing multiple cognitive-related tests. Researchers found that those who consumed over 20% or more of their calories from ultra-processed pro ultra foods had a higher risk of dementia. In a 2,000-calorie diet, this equates to only 400 calories a day coming from these ultra-processed foods. And in real life, that's about 20 potato chips or 30 french fries. And so it's not much. What, what is an ultra-processed food? What are we talking about here? Well, you know, ultra-processed foods are really like food products or food substances. They're, they're oils and fats and sugars and starch and protein isolates and that kind of thing. They contain no whole foods and typically include artificial flavorings, colorings, and other chemical additives. So it's like when you look at a, a thing of cheese and it says this is a cheese product. Or a cheese food. A cheese food. Right. A cheese type thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Okay. That's All it. Right. But ex other examples include sugar-sweetened beverages, frozen meals, processed red meat, that's your bologna, your salami, your so on, all those things, potato chips, french fries, store-bought cookies, sweetened breakfast cereals, refined grain pretzels. Patty, a lot of people live on that stuff. They live on it, and their kids live on it. That's what I'm really worried about. I mean, how many parents, you know, have to have to make a lunch every day, sometimes for three or four kids? We're, we're it's all processed foods because it's easy. They come in little mm. individually packaged mm. plastic packages, right? Yep. Single-serving, single-use plastics. We're going to talk a lot about that on the show a little right. bit later today. So the other thing is that, that they're addictive, and it's really hard to stop eating them once someone starts. And that's really an important thing. Um, you know, the other thing that I want to say about ultra-processed foods is that a lot of them contain GMOs. In fact, I would say all of them contain GMOs because that sugar is made from GMO sugar beets and oils or all those horrible seed oils and, you know, corn oil and all that stuff, which is all GMO. And corn itself and wheat itself that's used, ultra-processed, they're the GMO, all GMOs. The GMO controversy has kind of died down, but it's still out there. Oh. We still don't it's, know it's what the, the long-term impact right. of eating GMO food right. is. So, I mean, the study is very, it's very detailed, but they are showing ultra-processed foods increase inflammation in the brain, mm. which is a precipitating factor in cognitive decline. So, really right. interesting. Ultra-processed foods cause early dementia. Really? No jokes okay. there. Okay. No. What else you got? The last thing I have to talk about is uh, published in ProPublica, written by Peter Elkind, uh, who we our know. friend Peter. And yeah, and the title is What to Know About Cell Phone Radiation. I think when he started doing that story, the cell tower in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, he got... He, he got, got bitten. Bitten by yeah. this by the radiation bug. I agree. I think he was surprised to find out what he found yeah, out. Yeah, he was surprised to find there was a lot of depth here. Yeah. There was a lot of research, yeah. and there was a lot of harm. And wow! So he's really he's been on it. 
great. He's been on it since that story. So he's basically just, you know, put this article out called What to Know About Cell Phone Radiation. And then here you go. To many people, the notion that cell phones or cell towers might present a health risk long ago receded into a realm somewhere between trivial concern and conspiracy theory. For decades, the wireless industry has dismissed such ideas as fear-mongering, and federal regulators have maintained that cell phones pose no danger. But a growing body of scientific research is raising questions, with the stakes heightened by the ongoing deployment of hundreds of thousands of new transmitters in neighborhoods across America, especially across New York City right now. Yeah, those giant things those that are popping up Those giant antennas, exactly. ProPublica recently examined the issue in detail, finding that the chief government regulator, the Federal Communications Commission, relies on an exposure standard from 1996, when the Motorola StarTac flip phone was cutting edge, and that the agency brushed aside a lengthy study by a different arm of the federal government that found that cell phone radiation caused rare cancers and DNA damage in laboratory animals. The newest generation of cell phone technology, known as 5G, remains largely untested. So, he has it by section. Here's what you need to know. Do cell phones give off radiation? Yes. Definitively, yes. The amount of this radiation absorbed by the human body depends on how close a person is to a phone and a cell transmitter, as well as the strength of the signal the phone needs to connect with a transmitter. Cell phones displaying fewer bars, which means their connection with a transmitter is weak, require stronger power to communicate and so produce more radiation. What does the science say about cell phone radiation? Is it harmful? Well, that's the multi-billion dollar question. Government-approved cell phones are required to keep radiation exposure well below levels that the FCC considers dangerous. But those safeguards have not changed since 1996. And they focus exclusively on the unlikely prospect of thermal harm, the potential for overheating body tissue such as a microwave oven would. The government guidelines do not address other potential forms of harm. This is a very, very good and very carefully written article, and I'm going to suggest... Let's put it up on the site. I will put, I'll put a link up yeah. on the site, and yeah. I suggest everybody with a phone, and that would be Hello, just Hello, that's about, everybody out there. That would be everybody, right. you there with the phone. Take a, look at, you know, take a look at this article, because the government is not telling you what you really need to know to protect yourself and your family. Right, and ProPublica is not a... a a crazy... No, that's not a conspiracy uh, no, theory no, magazine. No, 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 no. This really is good. a well, well-researched article and written by a very good writer who yeah. has done his work, his homework. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. are what you eat. It's an old saying, but it has stuck around for years because it's a simple fact. What we put into our body is what our body uses to make new cells. As our cells get replaced over time, the new cells are made from the food we put in. So literally, we're made of the hamburger, the milkshake, and the french fries, or we're made of the salad, the veggie burger, and the spring water we ate a few weeks or months ago. A lot of things go into determining the food we eat. Part of it is our heritage, the kinds of food people like us have traditionally eaten. 
whether we're black or brown or Italian or Jewish or Asian or whatever. Some of it, and this is especially true for kids, depends on what our peers are eating. If everybody's eating pizza and soda, chances are good we'll eat pizza and soda too. That is, if we're a kid. And some of it depends on what's available to us. Not everybody has access to food. And that since food is such a huge part of our culture, it breaks my heart that not everybody has access to food. And when I think about food, I mean access to healthy food. That's Dr. Artie Ivanich, Dean of the Nicolay School of Business at Wagner College in Staten Island, and an expert in marketing. Dr. Ivanich has been studying and writing about the marketing of food for years. So my training is in marketing. And since I was thinking about nutrition, I said, okay, I don't want to really delve into the exercise part, but food is a really big thing because food brings us together. I mean, even over COVID, people are sitting together and baking bread, right? So that brings us together. And everybody has a different viewpoint and a different take on food. So I'm Indian. I grew up in India until I was 12. And food was a really big part of our culture. And that's how every Sunday I remember people coming home and we would eat food. And it was just, it was really, it was a nice, it's a nice memory for me. For more than a decade, Artie Ivanich was a professor at the University of San Diego in California. She says the university was situated in what she calls a food desert. USD is a very affluent private school located smack in the middle of a food desert, no access to healthy food options. I don't know, I think we have five or six different fast food restaurants. So you've got your McDonald's and Taco Bell and all of those. And we have one farmer's market there that accepts WIC and SNAP and EBT. And that farmer's market, people, it's every Thursday evening. And I see people there um, who go with their families, with parents, with kids to try and buy healthy food. But it's expensive. And when you think about people who are less fortunate, lower socioeconomic group, they don't have money or time to go out and buy healthy foods or to go to a farmer's market and shop. So what I've noticed about at least the community where USD is located, people are working two or three jobs. It's primarily African-American and Asian. And if people are working two or three jobs, but they have they also have children, they need to feed them. They don't have time to go to a farmer's market, buy food, go home, cook the food, feed their families. Way easier to go to McDonald's and pick up that food. Access to good food is certainly a problem, but there's another force at work in determining the kinds of food we eat. The way foods are advertised, the actors that are used in commercials, and the accents they use have a big influence on our food choices. And unfortunately, the people who are marketing food, especially to kids and teenagers, aren't really thinking about that old saying, you are what you eat. They're thinking about profit. So I started thinking about, okay, what can we do to try and bring healthier foods to people who are in lower socioeconomic groups, and then um, kind of breaking it down and putting the marketing angle on it. And with marketing, first thing that comes to mind for all consumers is advertising. So what role does advertising play in terms of getting people to buy certain types of foods? A key psychological driver of behaviors has to do with racial identification and just identification in general, right? So you've got this phenomenon of the in-group and out-group where I like to hang out with people who are similar to me because I think they have very similar interests, they have similar lifestyles, 
similar attitude towards life. And that's been ingrained in our society for the longest time. If you're watching BET, I'm a black youth, I see another black youth eating a Big Mac or drinking a Coke, I identify with that person and those are going to be my choices, right? What you rarely see um, is you rarely see African-American people actually in ads for foods that are healthier. I think when I think of smart water, Jennifer Aniston comes to mind, right? There are many African-American um, women who are extremely healthy and they promote healthy behaviors, but they're not the ones who are advertising these healthy options, right? So I think something, if marketers do want to play a role and companies do want to play a role, you change your advertising. The food choices we make are critical to our future health. Again, we are what we eat, and if the only fuel we're providing to our bodies is fat, salt, and sugar, our body isn't programmed to run on that kind of fuel. Long term, what are the repercussions of eating a bag of potato chips and drinking soda all the time? They're very negative, right? And um, particularly for uh, minority youth, they don't ha also don't have access to health care. Lower education, they don't have their health class in school like many of the other higher socioeconomic groups may have or Caucasian youth may have. But again, it's part of changing the mindset. And education, I think, is a very big part of it. So even educating youth about how certain choices, especially when they're younger, can have long-term effects, I think that's really important. So what can parents do to improve their own nutrition and that of their kids? Eating a meal together as a family has long-term positive effects on health and psychology and all of that. And I was watching TV a while ago, and I saw a commercial where there was an African-American family. They were, I think they went shopping together, got healthy food, and then they were cooking a meal together, and you had, like, your salad and your meat and your grains. And that was on TV, and what that showed me, I mean, one of the things that it sparked was, like, if I'm an African-American person watching this, right, and I can identify and say, hey, look, there's somebody who looks like me. They're making a meal with their family. Maybe that's something that I can do. It's now no longer seen as a quote-unquote Caucasian behavior, but now it's also part of my in-group. And that kind of triggers that level of familiarity or similarity, and you're like, okay, that person looks like me. They're engaging in these behaviors. That signals to me that that behavior is okay, and I can engage in it as well. But of course, our kids may not be watching television. Influencers are a really big deal, right? So when I think about my students who are 21, 22, they don't watch TV. I'll be honest with you. They're on Instagram all the time or on social media. They are, they're not even on Facebook anymore. But And they watch streaming services, right? So kind of marketing is shifting and it's changing. And it's going to depend on the demographic that you're targeting in terms of age, right? Everybody has different ways of consuming information. Looking at influencers, even young people, youth, whether they're in their teenagers or early 20s, if you can find these individuals to be champions of healthy eating habits, I think that'll take us a really long way. Because again, young people don't want to hear from somebody like me about like, this is what you need to do to be healthy, right? They want to hear from peers because peers have such a huge influence. Peer pressure has always been a significant influence on kids, especially those who are young teens beginning to make their own choices, including about what they eat. School is the ultimate peer pressure environment. 
and in school, food can be a problem. Peer pressure being what it is, school budgets being what they are, and purveyors of junk food exerting their influence on school lunch menus, getting kids to eat healthy is really hard. And the differences between schools can be stark when it comes to the kinds of foods that are available to students. Some high school students in San Diego decided to conduct their own study of school food. And their project was to bring their lunch tray from their cafeterias. And it's like, let's see what you're eating for lunch and let's see what I'm eating for lunch. And there was such a stark difference in the food that was offered in the private school versus the public school. So in the private school, you have water, you have a salad, you have a nice sandwich, you have fruit. And then in the public school, it was like sugary drinks and here's some french fries and a burger, right? And so again, that socioeconomic disparity, the inequities come into play and they're just exacerbated. And if you see that in a school, when these kids are really young, it just continues through life. So is it hopeless? Are we going to consign our youngest citizens to a life filled with health problems, doctor's visits, medications, and shorter lifespans? Our food problem is a national problem. It, it's, it's hard. Maybe it's more around education, right? And so maybe it's not that the government is taxing me if I want to drink a soda or taxing me more, but maybe it's about going into schools and talking to younger people and educating them. So instead of doing physical activity 30 minutes a week, which is what my son gets in elementary school, really building food and nutrition into the curriculum, I think is really good. So teaching youth about the benefits of healthy foods, right? And what does it mean to be healthy? What does it mean? What are the repercussions of what you put into your body short term and long term? I think that might be a really good place to start. Um, it gets less controversial. And it also gives you more of a long term impact, right? Because the behaviors and education in which we kind of instill in our kids, that takes them a long way. And right now, I think we're massively, it's an epic failure of what we're doing to the young people in this country. Dr. Artie Evenich, Dean of the Nicolay's School of Business at Wagner College in Staten Island, and an expert in food marketing. You can find links to articles written by Dr. Evenich on our website, greenstreetnews.org. You are what you eat. If you missed any part of today's show, you can always hear it again, along with our other past shows at greenstreetnews.org, where you can also get in touch with us about the show, send us your comments and suggestions about people we should have on the show or subjects we should cover. We'd love to hear from you. Many thanks to our Green Street News staff and the engineers at WBAI and other Pacifica and independent stations that carry Green Street News every week. We appreciate your work. I'm going to put links to all the news articles that Patty discussed at the top of the show on the website. Again, it's greenstreetnews.org. Before we go, I've had some people ask about the theme music on Green Street News. It's a piece I wrote a few years ago called Fragile from the Omni Library, and that's something that Patty and I recorded a few years ago with Patty on the flute and myself and our band of musician friends playing backup. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street News. Patty and I will be back next week with another show. Thanks for listening.